point today, I want us to turn to Romans back to Romans chapter 8. And I really believe that this fall is going to be a fall that like we've never experienced. I just have this feeling, not feeling, but like this conviction in my spirit that this is going to be an amazing fall. And if we hang in there, I think we'll just see God do some amazing things in our families, in our businesses, in our personal lives, personal victory, uh, personal peace. Amen. Um, Just some doors that open up to us that we don't, you know, as a Christian, you never have to chase things. This is not my message, but I just want to say it. Never, never feel like you got to chase stuff. You know, don't feel like you got to, if things come to you, remember Adam and Eve, Adam in the garden with, he's without a wife. And was he, was he chasing around like animals looking for his kind? You know, he's looking at the giraffe, he's looking at the elephant. No, that doesn't look right. <laughs> then God brings to him a wife, right? And so Adam was engaged in God's will for his life and God brought everything that he needed. And so Romans chapter 8, I want us to look at verses 31 through 39. And we've been talking about uh, the mind of Christ and our mental health. And it's kind of an interesting um, message because I haven't ever really talked about mental health, but it's really a <clears throat> it's really a topic today in a lot of places and in the world that we live in. And so I thought we could just take a few sermons and just talk about our mental health. And we're just camping out here in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, let's read verses 31 through 39. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What shall we say to these things if God is for us? And now what I want you to notice here is the word who. Okay? And I want you to count how many times that Paul uses the word who. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for all of us, shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is God who died. I'm sorry, it is Christ who died. Yes, who is who is risen, who is at the right hand of God, who, is, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep <clears throat> for the slaughter. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, neither things present, nor things to come, neither height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you remember in Romans chapter 7 near the end of the chapter, Paul is lamenting about his condition, his situation. He is talking about himself. He is in the 31 verses, I think it's 25 verses in Romans chapter 7, 30 times or 31 times he's saying the word I. And he's got this thing he's going on. He's just living, orbiting around his situation. Uh, in, his, in Paul's situation, the lack of victory, the lack of power that he's feeling in his personal life to make decisions for God. And he's lamenting over this. And at the end of the chapter, he says in Romans 7, verse 24, he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Notice that he didn't say what will deliver me from this. I think that in the world we can find a lot of what's, right? 
we can find a lot of self-help. We can find a lot of speakers that will talk about what will set you free or what will empower your life. We can find things in this world, philosophies that will, that will claim to empower you, to give you that what you need. What is it you need? And Paul says here, I know for a fact in Romans chapter 7 that it's not what that I'm looking for. I'm not looking for something different. I'm not looking for another circumstance. I don't need this, this thing to happen, this what in my life. I need a who. I need a new who. And who is that? The answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and I began to think about this yesterday, that everything that's happening in our life, everything that's happening in your life, wherever you're at today, the question is, the point is not what, but it's really who. Who is doing these things in your life? Who is for you? Who can stand against you, Paul says here in Romans chapter 8. And when we begin to understand the who instead of the what, I think we can begin to enter into healthy thinking. And we can come out of some of these loops that we get into. Uh, these mental loops that we just start looping. And we can't get out. Paul here is saying that there's, there is someone that can rescue me and that can deliver me. And so for a few minutes, and I have some slides I want to um, pull up here for you. I want us to look at this word um, risk for a minute. And I just want to talk about risk. And, and Craig or um, David, I'm going to just take control of the of the slides here. Is that good? Thanks. <laughs> what would we do if he said no, right? <laughs> okay. So um, it, while this is loading, I think, you know what? I think you just might have to do this manually. David, can you do that? So the first, so the first thing is, and I'm just going to go through these, and it's going to be pretty simple. Um, because I can't seem to... Oh, here it is. There we go. All right. So, um, I want to talk about first a word that we hear a lot today in the financial realm, and that is risk. When we talk about risk, when we talk about the things that we face today, in the financial world, the word risk means that percentage that there is a low return on your investment. In the realm of the human heart, risk means the possibility of failure. And that can be quite scary. Um, the word risk is really a new word in the English language. It appeared in the 1600s. And it appeared at the same time that capitalism became a thing. And before the, before the Reformation in the 16th century, fatalism, fatalism was basically ruled in religion. And what is fatalism? Fatalism is uh, when, when there's this thought <coughs> that, <coughs> excuse me, that says um, what will be will be, and there's no way to change that. Uh, in, the, in the Islamic world, it's inshallah, if, if Allah wills. Uh, fatalism is this, uh, there's this picture of a God that it's at the helm of creation and he has his own plan regardless of what people feel or what people are going through. He's going to do what he's going to do. It is, what it, it is what it is. And that is fatalism. And this is a word that, that, when, uh, that in the 1600s really, really governed religion. And what that, what that can mean is, is that <clears throat> when people began to um, 
uh, became a believer or they began to get in, into religion, they would discover that, that really it's impossible to know God. And, <clears throat> and after the Reformation in the 16 and 1700s, the age of reason and enlightenment was born. And that brought in a new philosophy called deism. <clears throat> I'm going to get to the practical part in a second. Deism is a philosophy or an idealism that states that God created this universe. God created everything and then he just let it go. And it's just going on its own way. It's like a, it's like a speeding train with no with the conductor, with the, with the driver, the engineer has jumped out and it's going barreling down the track without any, without any direction or any brakes. And this deism is really like a, a picture that God is remote and that God is invo uninvolved and that <clears throat> he's like an absent father. Um, and through this philosophy and through this kind of thinking, this produced an age where you can create your own future and it made God smaller, as well as us being much bigger. And so this kind of philosophy began with God not in the picture, but that we are controlling our own future. And we can really see this in our culture, can't we? We can see this, be all that you can be. You, you, can, change, you can change yourself, you can turn over a new leaf. Um, and we bring this into our faith because what happens is is that when we face circumstances and risk we're in a place where we feel I can change this myself and what this leads to is fear and control <clears throat> fear and control is a natural response to this philosophy it's a kind of response where we are moving from the who Jesus Christ to the what well, we're beginning to try to control things in our own lives. Um, Psalm chapter 3, and this really produces two things, fear and control. Psalm chapter 3, David is talking about fear. And there's a situation where David is faced, where he's threatened. There's a risk, there's a risk of, of his life. Um, Psalm chapter 3 is historically where Absalom, his son, uh, leads a rebellion, a conspiracy against King David as king of Israel. And his son Absalom is leading this conspiracy and there's great risk now at the, at the, at the, in David's kingdom. And David here is writing and he's saying here, he's saying that our many are saying about me, David said, many are saying that his God is not with him. They said the same thing about Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, if he was truly God, then let him save himself. And this is, the, well, this is what David is facing. David is facing this risk. And David had to relocate his identity. David had to, had to change the way his thinking was from the situation to who God was. And David said in Psalm verse three, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, he said, You are a shield for me, and you are the lifter of my head. David went from what is happening to who. David was going from the circumstance where his son Absalom was leading this rebellion against him and David shifted over to the who, who is God, who is the shield, his shield and his faith and the lifter of his head. David here is talking about what I think is so hard for us to do and that is to shift from what is happening to take our eyes of what's happening and to really look at who God is. The second thing that this deistic type of thinking or this kind of thinking where 
where we are living in a place of risk, so therefore we have to grab the steering wheel. We have to grab control. The second thing that happens is first fear, and then it's the second thing is control. And this is why we as men struggle with anger. We struggle with anger, and maybe women too, I don't know. But men generally struggle with anger because the way we are made is, is that we want to be, we want to have, have a predictable life. We want to lead, and we want to lead our families. We want to lead ourselves with some kind of an expectation of what this is going to look like in the end. And when it doesn't go out the way we thought it was, when, when circumstances don't, don't uh, proceed as we had planned, then we feel like, as men, we feel like we're losing control. And what do we do? Anger is that response. When we feel that I'm not in control, when I can't control the circumstance, when I can't control my job or my income, or when I can't control um, the circumstances of my marriage or my parenthood, or in the details of my life, or even in my country, or even in my neighborhood, the response naturally is anger. And anger is always a sign that we are reacting to the, to the insecurity that we feel that we are not in control. And the answer to anger is this, is that we get quiet before the mighty power of God. We get quiet before the majesty of who God is, and we begin to look to Him. And I'm look, I want to talk about that in a second. Control. And when we try to take control, we make two mistakes. Number one, we start living in a, we start living in a culture that says that we can control our future. That's the first mistake. That we would think in some way that we can control our future. James talks about this in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. He says this, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into the city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, what is your life? It is just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Then then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say in verse 15, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. When we try to take control of what we think is an out-of-control car or out-of-control vehicle or out-of-control situation, when we take control, when we try to take control, the first mistake we make is that we think that we can determine the outcome of what's going to happen. We can, in some way, we can do things that will in some way make a difference. But really, in reality, that can get away from us so easily. And the second mistake we make is that, and get this, this is interesting, that we overestimate the amount of information or knowledge that we have. Because James says, you do not even know. I think that when we think that we can take control of a circumstance and change it, when things get really tough, when... When, when foundations and circumstances and relationships get squirrely, when they start to move, we get this sense that I've got to take control. And the problem is, is that we don't really know what we think we know because we have no idea what's going to happen. Um, I remember in our neighborhood, um, there's a section of the neighborhood that's really, really nice. And it's called the, I think it's, it's called the Estates. And there's a house back there, and it's like a multi-million dollar home. It's huge. It's like, it's massive. It just sprawls over, and it's right next to a uh, lake. And we would walk by there very often and, and just look at that house and just try to imagine what it's like to live in that place. And, I mean, it's really stood out in the whole neighborhood. And I remember two years ago, there was a thunderstorm, and it was about 11 o'clock at night, and there was this loud crack and boom. 
And then seconds later, there were fire engines. And that house was, was the only house in the neighborhood that got struck. And the whole thing went on fire, went up in flames. And the people that lived in there had no idea what had happened. The house is so big. And so the fire department's coming and they're trying to break down the door and they, they rush in to this amazed family who were in shock and they said, your house is on fire. And they sat in their car. We were talking to our neighbors the other day about this and they sat in their car in their pajamas. They had no idea what they were going to do, where they were going to go. And you know, I think everybody in that neighborhood looks at that house like, wow, these people have arrived. And yet it was the only house that got struck by lightning. We don't know how life is going to go. We have no idea where things are going to. We don't know what's going to happen with the economy. Even if the guy gets into the office that we want to have as president gets in there, we have no idea how it's going to go. We are not in control. And we ought to live in this sense of dependency on God. Because when we live in fear, we're going to react in anger. And if we live in control, we're going to be so disappointed that we can't control things. Here's a conclusion. I want to look at Matthew chapter 6 with you. Matthew chapter 6. And then we'll, then we'll go back to Romans chapter 8. Matthew chapter 6. And it says this, verse 26, verse through 29. And I remember we were, um, I was 25 or 26. And I was living in Ukraine. I just moved there. And my wife and I were dating. And um, she was 19 or 20 and I was 25. And I remember I proposed to her. I proposed to her in Krakow uh, by the Botanical Garden. Like we have Polish people here. They probably know where that is. There's this beautiful, this beautiful garden uh, that surrounds the center of the city. And um, I proposed to her there on July 4th. Um, and she said yes, obviously. <laughs> and I remember that we were just kind of talking and it was going it was going to be like another 2 weeks and she was going off to college to Baltimore and I was moving to Ukraine. And I remember we were sitting there by the park bench right next to this um, castle called Vavel. And it's kind of like a beautiful big castle with a with a with like this big wall around it and there's a river that goes by the castle it's called the Viswa. And there was a park there we can sit on benches. And I remember sitting there with my with my now my fiance, and it started to sink in what we had just done. <laughs> I proposed. And I don't know if you've been there, if you're a man or maybe a woman, and after that great decision, you're thinking, wow, what, <laughs> how is this going to work? You know, I don't have any money, and, you know, and it's like, you start, you start looking at things by sight, you know, like, wow, this does not look good. And I mean, I didn't say that. I just was starting to worry. And I, we were sitting there by a bench, and just when we started worrying, out of nowhere, all these little birds just like showed up, like maybe this big. Like they all came together, and they're all like, it was literally something out of a movie. There was like maybe 20 or 30 of these little birds, and they all kind of just came over to our bench, and they're all chirping at us, like, like really loud. And at first, I don't know, maybe because people feed these birds or something, and they look like, we looked like that we had bread or something. So these birds are chirping and they're popping around and they're, they're really excited. And I'm, I'm like, and, I, and it dawned on me, Matthew chapter 6, verse 26. The Lord was showing something to me through the birds. And it was this, that look at the birds of the air. And this word look here is a very intent, interesting word. The word look means to, with purpose, study and look and intentionally look at the birds. And so I was looking at these birds and they're, you know, they do not sow, nor do they reap, nor gather into, bar into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
I thought, wow, God's going to feed us. God's going to take care of us. A few years later, back in Ukraine, I think it was like seven or eight years later, my wife and I were visiting. We were in Ukraine, and, and I remember it was a very difficult time just for just with regards to finances and provisions and things like that. And I remember sitting in this apartment that we were renting. We were spending some time in Lviv, which is western part of Ukraine. And I'm sitting there, I'm looking out the window, praying, I'm just studying. And it's one of those times where you're like, like, God, you've got to do something or we're just dead. We're, we're done, you know. And I don't know what was happening, but I just remember this desperate prayer. And I remember as I was sitting there, I was looking out this window, and this bird came, and he just sat there, and he's looking at me through the window. I mean, the, my desk, the window, and bird. And he's looking right at me, and he starts doing this incredible chirping, like this beautiful song. It's like singing and chirping. And I was just, it was like for like, it was going on and on. I'm like, this is incredible. This is so odd. And I'm not a bird watcher, so I don't know what kind of bird it was. But I had this beautiful, like, chirp. And I looked at the bird, and I thought of this verse, look at the bird. So I'm looking at the bird and thinking, what is... And you might realize they have no hands. Isn't that amazing? Birds don't have hands. God created an incredible creature that has no hands. It just has wings. And it's kind of like the believer. Like we don't really, in the kingdom of God, we don't have a lot of hands. We don't have any hands. But we can fly. We can soar above problems. We can live in faith. We can walk in peace. And what's interesting is that birds don't have any way, you know, like every animal in the animal kingdom, most of them, I guess, is able to make their own food or go out and catch their own food or, or, or do something. But a bird has no way to feed itself. It has no hands to manipulate anything. It only can eat the thing that's in front of it. And this is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 6. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Can I ask you that today? Are you much better? Are you not much better than a bird. I think sometimes we don't think that way, but that word in the Greek, much better, means to carry. It's interesting. It means to carry through from point A to point B. Will not God carry you from point A to point B? Are you, much, are you not much more valuable? Do you understand your value and your, how much God loves us, as, as Sandin was saying, that he loves us and that he'll provide for us and that, we'll never, that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Like the promise it says in the book of, in the book of Matthew, it says that I've never seen the righteous forsaken or begging for bread. Let's go back to Romans chapter 8 and I want to look at this, um, these final verses here in Romans chapter 8. I think there's just so much mental anguish that we can be going through if we don't understand the love of God. And that is this verse... Verse 31, what shall we say to these things of God before us who can be against us? And I like this in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's not what, because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The only person that could ever separate us from the love of God or separate us from the love of Christ is Christ himself, because he's the judge. He's the one who finished, who, who began and finished our salvation. And it, and it says this, that, that I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. You know, maybe there are people today that are facing death. Um, when we were away, we had a very good friend who lost their daughter suddenly. Um, and that could easily separate, make a person feel separated from the love of God. Can tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness or peril sword. 
And look at verse 37. Let me know in all these things we are more than conquerors. How are we more than conquerors? How are we more than conquerors? What makes us more than a conqueror? Who makes us more than a conqueror? Through him who loved us. And that's what I just want to finish this simple message with is, is that, that we are conquerors today, not because the what in your life gets changed, not because something happens, not because a prayer is answered, but it's through who, that Jesus Christ is with us. It's incredible how much we can go through when we know that somebody is with us by our side. Many times, um, and, and I know this has happened in my family. My great-grandfather, which is from, he's from Denmark. He was from Denmark, and my great-grandmother's from Denmark. And they, uh, they, they moved to upstate New York, that immigrated there. And they were so close, and they were, you know, they're such a team. They were married for decades. And then my great-grandfather passed away. And I remember seeing a letter, a handwritten letter from my great-grandmother to my mom, who was her, who, which was, I'm sorry, to my mom's, mom, my grandmother, and it, and it was just very, you know, simple, bad English, because she was Danish, didn't know really good English, and she wrote, she goes, I don't know what I'm going to do without um, Petter, I'm sorry, without Morton um, in my life, and within a year, she was gone. Do You know, I think that when we understand that God will never leave us nor forsake us, that we can face tomorrow we can face any circumstance that God's love is with us that he can that he will continually love us that love never fails that we could understand that that the that that God is not he has not created a uh, created a creation that is that he is separated from that he is not participating in but the very one the very one who um the very one that that um that, that seems to not be in control is actually in control. And this is a beautiful thing because I think when we look at circumstances in our life, maybe you're facing financial situations. Maybe you're fi facing a job situation. Maybe you're facing a, a relationship situation. We need to understand that we are not in control. And there's nothing really that we can do. To, we can change things temporarily, but that could, that could come apart so easily. I think in conclusion, there's three things that we need to remember. Number one, um, let's humble ourselves and understand that we're not in control. And it's okay to say, and it's hard for some of us to say that, because, you know, as men, <clears throat> we tie our identity and our self-worth as a husband with the ability that we can provide for our family. And it's very hard for a man to go through a time of hardship in the family because he is thinking that he's not a good husband or not, not a good dad. And I think if, if you're a husband or a father, you know what I'm talking about. You, you just are embarrassed. It's almost embarrassing to, to be in a situation where, where people know that you're not able to provide. And so we want to just jump in and then to, because of fear, we want to jump in and try to control. And I think that if, if you know someone in that kind of circumstance, um, give them grace, encourage them, um, pray for them. Understanding that we're not in control. God is in control in the end. We do our best, but God is in control. And secondly, the one who is in control is not an absent father. He's engaged in your life. He's engaged in the plan. He's engaged in your family. And the one who is in control died for you. He died for you. Amen? He died for you. 
God is who in control and he came into this world and he, partici he participated in the scariness of it. You know, it's interesting in Matthew chapter 6, it says, for your heavenly father knows what you have need of. I've always loved that verse because that word here, to know, your heavenly father knows. And I would say when I read that verse, how does God know what I need? He's in heaven and I'm on earth. Where Christ came, lived on this earth for 30 years, 33 years. And God, through his son, partook of the scariness of this world, the risks that are faced. And number three, the sovereignty of God. When we say sovereignty, that means that God is, that he will do what he will do and there's no counselor. There's no one that could ever counsel him. He will do that he will, what he will do. And because he is God, he is most sovereign. But the sovereignty of God differs greatly from fatalism and the paganism of just religions that say, what will be, will be. Um, God will do what he will do. And no one could be his counselor. But rest assured in this, that his sovereign plan is founded and guided in and on the goodness and the grace of God. And that is the gospel that lifts us out of our state of passivity, fear and control, and takes us into the enemy's camp to possess our possessions. I want to finish with this. is that God has called us, like the Israelites, to go into a promised land and to take something that God has given us. And there's no way that we can do this as a husband or as a wife, as a single person, or as a teenager, or we have, um, Deborah is going off to college, this is her last Sunday here with us for a while, and then Esther goes next Sunday to college, or next Sunday is her last Sunday. And the best thing to remember is, is that God is in control and that he goes before us. He's called us to possess these possessions and that we can go in and that we can know that God is for us, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, no circumstance, no what, no who, and that God is in our life and that he is leading us and he's guiding us and that whatever that sovereign plan is, whatever that plan that God has for us, we need to remember that it's founded and rooted in his goodness and in the end it will work out. It always does. It does every time. And that God never fails and his love never fails. And that's just a very simple message for you this morning. This is what I want us to remember as we go into this week, as we face this fall, that there are some great things that God has for you. I really sense I have like this conviction in my heart that, that um, he's going to blow our minds. But first he has to break our concepts of what we think is great. God's like thinking you're so small. You're thinking so small. And I've got to break that little small world so I can show you the great things that I have for you. Are you being broken in a relationship? Are you being broken in circumstances? Are you being broken <clears throat> in your personal life or things that, you're going on, that are going on in your own mind? If you're being broken, then let God break you because he's preparing a place, a capacity for you and I to receive something that's much greater than we have right now. Amen?